You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, if you want to open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, we're going to look at 38 and 39 today. We're going through the book of Genesis. Um, when we started the church back in 2020, we did the book of John, did the Gospel of John. And then when we finished, uh, the book of John starts with in the beginning was the word. And then we thought, well, what book should we do next? Let's do the other in the beginning book. So we went to Genesis and we've been in Genesis for quite some time now. But we've only actually after today got six sermons left in the book of Genesis. So we're uh, in the home stretch. We're in the fourth quarter. We've been going fairly quickly here through the last few chapters because, well, the stories kind of spread out a little bit, so we want to take it kind of episode by episode. I think that's a better way to go through Genesis, but it has led itself to some some longer sermons, um, and uh, today will be no different. Uh, Psalm 38 and 30, or not Psalm, uh, Genesis 38 and 39 are rich and full and controversial, and you're going to wonder why in the world is this in the Bible? Um, I, uh, some have told me that it feels a little bit like a soap opera going through Genesis because there's so many ups and downs, there's so many uh, relational dynamics and tensions and back and forth, and today will be no different. Uh, so the title of today's message is the, A Tale of Two Brothers, uh, which, interestingly, is also the title of a story from ancient Egypt, like the 1200s BC. There's a story about two brothers, and, uh, and they are uh, Bata and Anubis, and this local legend, this, this kind of legend, is about two brothers who, their parents die, and the older brother kind of takes custody of his younger brother, and they begin to have this pretty prominent, rich household, where the younger brother works for the older brother. Well, while they're out in the field, working the field, they run out of seed, and the younger brother goes back home to get more seed, and while he's there, his older brother's wife tries to seduce him. And he resists, and she's very angry about this, and he runs back and gets to work, and when the older brother then comes home, she lies about it and, uh, and, and accuses the younger brother of, of abusing her and using her, and so there's this tension now where the older brother then starts to pursue to kill his younger brother, and, uh, and through a, a crazy set of circumstances in the story, the younger brother ends up ruler over Egypt. And, uh, and so it's just fascinating in this legend that, uh, that is written probably a good 200 years or so after the Joseph story that it has so many parallels to the Joseph story. So the tale of two brothers in ancient literature, if you ever want to read it, it's a fun read and it's quite weird. Uh, but it's just fascinating that you have kind of this secular, not secular, Egyptian story, so to speak, that has so many overtones to the story that we're going to have today in, uh, particularly in chapter 39, the Joseph story. So, um, there's sort of an Egyptian retelling of the legend uh, in, in, in a really uh, bizarre kind of way. So I decided to title this message the same thing because we have a, a tale of a brother Judah and Joseph. We're at the point in the book of Genesis where in chapter 37, we have the chapter uh, begin with the statement, these are the generations of Jacob. And uh, these are the generations of is the chapter breaks. It's the seams in the book of Genesis that tells you we're moving into a new set of the narrative. And so we're looking now at the sons of Jacob, particularly Judah and Joseph. Those are the two of the 12 sons of Jacob that we're supposed to be watching. Because God made a promise to Abraham to bless all of the nations and to bring redemption through a seed of Abraham. And that promise passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then from Isaac to Jacob. And now we're looking at these 12 sons, these 12 tribes, these 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob, wondering where's the seed? 
Where is the promised seed? Where is the line of redemption going to come? And we get an indication as Moses is writing this that we should be watching Judah and Joseph. If we want to understand the redemptive plan of God through the seed of Abraham, we got to watch Judah and Joseph. So let's first look at Judah in chapter 38. And a little bit of an outline here. Uh, I think this will help us since we're covering quite a bit here. Is There's some parallels between chapter 38 and chapter 39. You can break them down into three parts. Judah is going to cheat Tamar, his daughter-in-law, out of sons. We'll explain why that's the case. And then what's going to happen at the end of the chapter is that Tamar is actually going to bear sons for Judah, all right, which is just as gross as it sounds. And uh, we'll see how the story gets there with Tamar's shrewdness and Judah's carnality. Now, we have a bit of a parallel in chapter 39 because Joseph, off in Egypt, is uh, thriving in Potiphar's mansion. And ultimately, at the end of the chapter, there's going to be this reversal where he's going to be thrown into Pharaoh's prison. Well, how does that happen? Well, it's through Potiphar's wife's seduction, deception, and Joseph's integrity, okay? So these two chapters, while it looks like 38 is sort of just inserted into the Joseph story, there's a parallel. We're to see the two chapters together as we see the tale of these two brothers and the contrast and comparison between these two guys. Does that make sense? So now let's jump into Judah. Um, This is the chapter that when I told Bree that I was planning to go through Genesis, she went immediately to chapter 38 and goes, hey, there's like kids in the room. How are you going to preach Genesis 38? It's like, well, that's way down the line. We'll We'll worry about it when we get there. Well, now it's time to worry about it. So here we are. Let's, uh, let's dig into it. It'll go well. I think you'll be amazed at what all is in this chapter. Uh, so let's look at, at, uh, at 38 verses 1 through 11. Judah cheats Tamar out of sons. Let me just read 1 through 11, and then I'll explain what's going on. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, the sight of the Lord, I should say, and the Lord put him to death. Well, that's new. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So here we go. This feels like a soap opera. Here we go. So we've got this challenge between Judah, one of the patriarchs, and here's what happens. Judah strays from the faith family. He's gone off by himself, right? We see that in verse 1 and 2. He makes a Canaanite friend named uh, Hira, uh, so he's beginning to, the, the, the Canaanites who are not known for worshiping God, he's befriending, his closest friends are non-God worshipers, and he marries a Canaanite woman. Judah has th- three sons pretty quick with this woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, 
and, uh, and takes a wife for Ur named Tamar. So Tamar is really the key player in this story, her and, and, and Judah. In verse 7, God kills Ur for being evil. We don't know why. We don't know why. The same thing's about to happen to Onan, so maybe it's related some way to a mistreatment of Tamar, and particularly the, uh, the lack of desire to bring forth sons, which is part of the promise of Abraham. This is part of why it's so wicked, is that the, the children of Abraham are supposed to have children because one of the children is going to be the redeemer of the whole world. So to refuse to have children in this way is really particularly a lack of trust in God, kind of a shaking your fist at God. And so perhaps we don't really know. But this is kind of new where God directly puts someone to death so we can know that whatever it was, it was serious enough that God went ahead and um, used his prerogative to take a life if, uh, if it was merited. So then what happens is Ur, uh, Ur's wife, uh, Tamar, doesn't have any children. And she has the legal right as the wife of the firstborn to bear children for the line. Uh, that's the way it worked back then is that the firstborn would be the carrier on of the name of the family. And Tamar, as the honored wife of the firstborn, deserves the right to have children. And, uh, and, and just the way that societies are set up then, which is quite a bit different, there's not a social security net. If there is, uh, there's, no, there's no social programs to catch somebody. So your family is really what is needed. And if the family line goes and, and, and disappears, then, uh, then, all, then everybody's put at risk. So it's really important, this bearing of children, particularly sons. And so we have this principle that we see in multiple cultures, not just Jewish cultures, but many ancient cultures called leveret marriage. And this was a solution to when there's a death in the family without children, particularly of the firstborn, who's supposed to be the caretaker for the entire family, what happens if he dies or there's not sons? Well, now there's a duty of the brother to go and to have sons in his brother's name with his with his, uh, his brother's widow. That seems weird, but that's, that, that was pretty common across ancient cultures that you had to have some way for humanity to survive. So it feels weird to us, but if you're, if you're talking life and death here, and you're talking lineage here, then there has to be a mechanism for bringing forth sons. Every woman is male dependent at this point. You're dependent first on your father, and then ultimately you're given and you are dependent upon your husband. And then ultimately you hope to have sons who will then care for you then. You don't have many options as a woman. And it is the legal obligation of a husband's family to provide a male heir, particularly to the wife of the firstborn. So that's where Tamar's at. She's been brought into this family, this family of faith, this family that has this remarkable promise, and they're supposed to bear sons. That's her right, that's her job. And now she's had one son die, the firstborn, and now there's this obligation that Judah tells Onan, you have a responsibility to conceive with Tamar so that, she, so that your brother's line passes on. Now the way this works is that if, uh, if there is a conception and a son that's born, it falls still under the firstborn's line. It's still considered that. Like, you know the royal family? There's the line of succession, right? It goes down from, uh, like, Queen Elizabeth down to Prince Charles. And then from Prince Charles, Charles has two sons, right? William and Harry. And so William is the next in line. And then whatever children William has, they're the next inheritors, right? And Harry keeps getting bumped the more children that William has. Now, if you can imagine, William dies without having children, then it would be Harry's responsibility to keep that line going. But if that line goes, that means he gets bumped further down the list. That's what's happening with Onan. 
Onan is happy to enjoy Tamar sexually, but he does not want to conceive a child because he wants to inherit all of the stuff. So this is terribly wicked of Onan to use her in this way and yet not to conceive with her. He's dishonoring his brother. He's dishonoring his father. He's dishonoring Tamar. He's dishonoring his own self, his own family, because he knows that any children he has with her will be ahead of him in line in terms of the inheritance. He is offending God by not prioritizing the promise that God has given to his people to have children in this way, that he decides to use her but not allow her to conceive. You can probably figure out what's going on there. The text is explicit enough to explain how that's happening. This is horrible. God puts Onan to death because of his disrespect for God, his disrespect for his father, his disrespect for his brother, and his use of this woman um, with no intention at all of being, um, in a sense, the leader of the family. So God says, okay, you don't get to be the leader of the family. Ur is wicked, dead. Onan's wicked, dead. And now Shelah, who appears to be a young man, not quite ready to be married, but close, is next in line. And here's, a, here's, here's just a quote from a commentator. Tamar didn't have an option of just finding another man to marry. She was under the headship of her father, Judah, her father-in-law, Judah, who had, had to give her a husband. He determined who and whom and when she could marry. So that's what happens. He tells Tamar, go back to your father's house and live the life of a widow. And when my son is of age, then you may have children with him. So she's betrothed. She's engaged. Judah, as the head of the family, has this ability. You know, she's now been married into the family. She's now under the responsibility of the family. And he holds her hostage. Go home and live the life of a widow. You're not allowed to marry anywhere else. But he has no intention of giving her Shelah. So he's essentially signing her destitution. Like she is being boxed out of the family and Judah is lying to her because he has no intention of giving Shelah. He's under the impression that his sons didn't die because they're wicked. They died because Judah is some sort of black widow. She's cursed in some way. And so he's trying to find a way to box her out of the family line, trying to box her out of having children. And he himself is willing to have both his son and Tamar remain engaged, but never married. And essentially the line of Judah is about to come to an end. It's about to come to an end because Shelah is not engaged to anybody else. He can't be, he's engaged to Tamar, but he has no intention of bringing those two together. And so they have this disobedience of God of going, they want to bring the line of Judah is going to come to an end if something doesn't change. Okay, are you tracking with what's going on? All right, this was no place, this is what one commentator said, this was no place for a young childless widow to be. There were additional brothers in her husband's family who could fulfill the obligation they owed to her late brother. None of this was the fault of Tamar. All the blame belonged to Judah and his sons. So this poor woman has been brought into this family that should be a tremendous blessing to her, right? This family is to be a blessing to all nations. And she's married two jerks who got put to death by God for being evil. And then the other thing that she's owed, which is a child through this family, she's getting boxed out from that. She's in a desperate spot. She hasn't done anything wrong. And, uh, and she, the people of God are mistreating her in this way. This is where Tamar is at. So now let's move to the next few verses. Tamar's shrewdness and Judah's carnality. All right, so how is this problem? We've got the tension. Every good story has a tension, right? How is this tension going to get worse and then be resolved? 
Well, we'll find it right here in verses 12 through 26. Let me just read the whole thing, and then I'll explain it again like I just did the first section. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira of Adel, the, the Adamalite. So there's Hira again. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance uh, to Enam, Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? He replied, she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. This is like the equivalent of giving over your wallet, your ID. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. When she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat to his friend, by his friend, the Adolamite, that's so hard to say, Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. He returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place say, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, uh, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her, her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify those, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. What a story. What a crazy story. So Tamar again is stonewalled. She's waited past the reasonable time. Shelah should be given to her in marriage. And Judah is not allowing it to happen. She has respect for her husband. She has respect for the line of Judah. She has respect for what has been, um, what has been requested of her. But the other side is not following through on the deal. And she's left out. And so she has an option in front of her. What happens is, is that uh, Judah's wife dies. And Judah, after mourning a certain time, is going to go up to the sheep shearing party. If you go to 1 Samuel 25, you'll know that the sheep shearing parties were kind of like Mardi Gras. This is a place to go party. This is go to Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So it's pretty clear that he's going to go sheep shearing, which means that he's going to go party. And 1 Samuel 25 shows us a little bit of what that looked like generations later. So she knows that Judah, who has been boxing her out from having, the, what, having what is required to have a child, and he's just going to go to some prostitute. The seed of the family belongs to her by right, and he's going to go to a prostitute she knows and just sort of give it wherever, right? If you're tracking with what I'm saying. 
So she puts together this plan to go, well, if anyone is deserving of the family's DNA, it should be me. I'm owed that. And so she goes and puts herself in a place where Judah's carnality, where she will be able to uh, receive that from him. So that's exactly what happened. Tamar takes off the robes of mourning and then puts on a veil and she sits outside the city. Now, I think it's pretty interesting that Tamar is going to try to get what's owed her, but she doesn't, she knows Judah. She knows Judah's tendency. She knows that he's a man uh, that looks to just please himself. And she's entitled to offspring from this family. She's entitled to her husband's seed. And what we find is that Judah is no better than Onan. An obligation to provide a male heir, if possible, to Tamar, but he's not allowing her to have it. But he still wants to gain sexual pleasure for himself. So just a complete disrespect of the whole thing. Now, it's interesting. Tamar, she's not, her plan is not to go seduce Shelah. Her plan actually isn't to go seduce Judah. If you'll notice what happens, she's just sitting by the road. She's put herself in a position, but it's Judah that comes to her. It is Judah that seduces her, so to speak. And so we, we need to keep that in mind here, that Tamar is not planning to seduce, but she is going to put herself in the direction there, knowing what kind of man Judah is. If Judah is going to make a contribution to someone, it ought to be me. So she wisely asks for a pledge when he comes to her. He's, she's not interested in money. This is not true prostitution. She's not trying to make a living off of this. But she does know what kind of person she's dealing with. And so she wants a pledge. And so she gets his signet ring, she, or uh, his seal that would be around his neck, the cord and the seal, and, uh, and his staff. This is essentially his driver's license. You know, what do you need to, to prove who you are? Well, this is it. So hang on to this, and then when you send me a goat, then you can have your stuff back. But she didn't care about that. This isn't about finances for her. This is about honoring her husband and her family, and she's stuck in a family that won't do that. So this is the situation she's in. The widow, who has been mistreated by the men of her family, chooses, uses the callous whim of a father-in-law to turn the tables on him. Tamar begins to show. She conceives after this event, which is pretty remarkable. I think God's hand maybe is in this. She conceives right then and there. She puts on her widow's clothes and goes back. So she hasn't taken up prostitution. In fact, when they're asked about it later, they're like, there's no prostitute here. This, is, this was for one purpose, to do one thing. That's what Tamar is doing. So Tamar begins to show three months in, and there's this accusation. And Judah, in all of his righteous anger, goes, let her come out and let her be burned. Judah all of a sudden is Mr. Integrity, right? He's Mr. Judgment. And he has rendered as patriarch of the family of going, yes, this is awful. This is terrible. This is inexcusable. She shall be put to death. Now, here's the craziness is that he's had two sons die. And he is just put forth the order to kill two more sons because she's pregnant with twins by him. So this is sort of the irony here is that he's actually, he's actually ordering the death of two more sons. Just tells you kind of where they're at. He doesn't know that yet, but let's just keep in mind what's happening here. She, in a great, like this would, this would make a great movie, you know, just as they're about to put the fire to her, she pulls out, these are the things, right? Like, 
it's just a really amazing the, uh, the tension that's set up here. She brings out the things going, this is the man who, in, who impregnated me. This is the one whose sons I carry. And then Judah is, it says, verse 26, Judah identified them, so he owns it. At that point, he owns it. And he said, she is more righteous than I. In fact, you could translate that, she is righteous, not I. I put her in a horrible situation. And she has more honor for her, hus- for her husband and my sons and for my lineage and the promise that's been made to us. Perhaps, perhaps that's what's being here. So this isn't to excuse Tamar entirely, but you go, man, who, who's, who's ultimately responsible in this situation? And Judah himself goes, it's me. I should have given her to my son, Shelah, and I didn't. And then you have that tag and he did not know her again, which means that he... I think he's a changed man at this point. I think this is repentance. I think this is a bit like the David situation where he gets Bathsheba pregnant and then he's got to kill off the husband and then he quick marries her and then Nathan comes and tells him a story and, uh, and then um, David pronounces judgment. The man who stole that sheep should be put to death and then, Dave, and then Nathan goes, you're that man. And at that point, David's like, he's just broken. Psalm 51 isn't, it shows what David's heart is then after the fact. I think this is a similar type of thing. Is that now, like he has come face to face with who he is and he understands the situation he's put her in and I think he's repentant because Judah is a different man through the rest of the book. We'll see that at the end. He was selling his brother into bondage for money. He's hanging out with Canaanites. He's, he's got sons that are being put to death for being wicked and now we're gonna see a major turn in Judah. This big reveal Judah responds and, prevent, and repents. It's almost like John 8, where the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus, and the one who is without sin casts the first stone. And it's sort of like, Judah's like, I, I gotta put the stone down. I'm the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. She is not responsible for this situation. I'm responsible for this situation. And he did not know her again, because that would have made him guilty of incest. And from there, Judah is a bit of a different man. So let's close out the chapter. Tamar bears sons for Judah, her father-in-law. Verse 27, when the time of her labor had come, there were twins in her womb. Have we heard that before? Jacob and Esau, right? Which I think is a bit of an indication that, go, oh, this is where the promise lies. This is where the promise is going because now we're having a repeat. The promise was going through Isaac and it was going to go through Esau or Jacob and they're wrestling in the womb and then surprisingly the promise is going to go through the younger not the older well we have a bit of a replay of that which i think is an indication that this is the line to watch for the deliverer she went into labor one put out his hand and the wife took and tied a tarlet scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first verse 29 but when he drew his hand back Behold, this brother came out and said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, the brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. So again, there's this odd sort of like, what you think is going to be the firstborn who carries on the line. Actually, it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be Perez, the breached one. And so here's what's interesting. The line is restored. Two sons were put to death because of their wickedness, but because of Tamar, two sons are now born. The line is restored. There are now sons of Judah to carry on the line. What Judah meant for evil, God through Tamar used for good, that many lives would be saved, which is what Joseph is gonna say at the end of the book. And so here we have another notable birth of twins. 
The identity of the firstborn is crucial to the story. Having identified one child as the firstborn, there's this weird switch. And it's actually the one that comes out, the twin who's born first. And so we have this unusual birth that looks a lot like the Jacob and Esau, the younger gaining prominence over the older. And, and we have this uh, interesting uh, situation, repeat. Um, and so this is fascinating. This is fascinating. So chapter 38, weird chapter. Lots of questions. Let me just lay out a few applications here. Why this story? So you read this story, and you got the Joseph encounter in chapter 37. Okay, he's in Egypt. Then in chapter 39, he's in Egypt. And we're going to get to that in a second. Why would you insert this right here? And here's a few reasons why I think this story is in the Bible. Number one, it explains the origins of the kings of Israel. There is going to be a prophecy that Jacob is going to make that kings will come from the line of Judah. And since that's going to be important to Israel's history, Moses wants to include that. Now, here's the irony, is that the kings of Egypt believe that they're descended from gods. The pharaohs believe that they're descended from the god Horus. Who are the kings of Israel descended from? An incestuous relationship between a father and a daughter-in-law. So the kings of Israel should have great humility, Right? The kings, the, the kings of other peoples see themselves as gods and better than everyone else. But the kings of Israel have this built-in humility of going, you did not come from anything better than anyone else. So the kings of Israel ought to be marked by humility. Now, they won't be. But if you look back, look at your origin story. Like if you were making up a legend, you would make your royal line much more honorable than this. But God goes, no, 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 no. You are the royal line because of my grace, not because you're better than me. In fact, look at what the great Judah has done. Number two, another reason why this story is just context for the Joseph story. We're going to see such a different kind of person. Judah is just driven by his desires and what's opportunistic at any given time. Joseph is going to be a man of integrity. So you're going to see the difference between these two brothers. Jo Judah, who's free in the land of promise, is a total creep. Joseph, enslaved in the, end, in the land of Egypt, is going to be godly. So you see this contrast between these two sons. Number four, God's purposes and plan cannot be thwarted. Even when the people of God are like determined to wreck this thing, God has the ability to use the decision-making of a Canaanite woman who, with questionable savvy, preserves the line. And God's like, and he's going to do that again. You're going to see that with a prostitute named Rahab. You're going to see that through Ruth and Bathsheba. You can just look at the lineage of Jesus and go, it is amazing. God did some amazing work through some amazing people and even some questionable people to bring about his plan. And he's happy to do that. Both victim and victimizer can be redeemed because both of them are going to end up being redeemed by the actions of Joseph later. There's going to be someone who's righteous who's going to redeem both victim and victimizer, both Judah the victimizer and Tamar, the victim, will both be redeemed as they're saved from famine to go into the land of Egypt because of Joseph. Judah seems to be genuinely convicted and begin to repent, and we need to keep an eye on him because his transformation is going to be stunning when we get to the end of the book. He's going to be so much different than the rest of his brothers, even willing to give himself in place of his brother, which is pretty remarkable. I want to just note a couple things about Tamar's honor. <clears throat> Certainly don't want to condone what she did. 
But we need to look at what the scriptures have to say about her. And really, to some extent, they honor her. So we get into some tricky things to figure out here. She didn't have a lot of options in front of her. She was sort of put in a bad spot. She was choosing between two bad options, right? I think uh, those of you that are in the military understand that, right? (laughs) Sometimes you're stuck between two bad options. And so she chose the one that seemed actually more honorable to the family as a whole. And so here's what it says in Ruth. So you go down the line a little bit later. And Ruth, chapter 4, Ruth is a Moabitess who comes and is looking to be redeemed. Kind of this leveret marriage principle again, to be redeemed by someone. And Boaz is a candidate. And what happens is she comes and lays herself at the feet of Boaz. And there's this question that's sort of laying there. Is Boaz going to be a Judah or is Boaz going to be a Joseph? Is he going to be a man who takes opportunity with this woman? Or is he going to be someone who's honorable and does the right thing? And ultimately, he ends up redeeming her in an honorable way. And you begin to see that he, she then becomes the grandmother. I think it's the grandmother of the great King David. And look what, look what happens at the end of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 12. This is the blessing that's pronounced on her when she's redeemed by Boaz. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring of the Lord will give you uh, by this young woman. So referring to Tamar is seen as a blessing. May you be like Tamar. That's the blessing they pronounce on her. So that's sort of the retrospective look at Tamar. Look at verses 18 through 21. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So Tamar gets to play a part in the line of the great King David. Not only that, Matthew 1, 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You remember that phrase? The book of the genealogy? Ties back to Genesis. Now we're in the New Testament. The New Testament starts with a genealogy that looks a whole lot like a genealogy in Genesis, which shows that the whole Bible is connected. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Interesting. The other other women aren't mentioned, but when it gets to Judah talking about him, the writer of Matthew says, we ought to give a moment for Tamar here. A moment for Tamar. And then it continues on in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Isn't amazing? You have to have Genesis 38 in your Bible or you don't really understand the work of God, even through messy situations, even in spite of the people of God at times. There's only five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. It's weird. Sarah's not mentioned. Rebecca's not mentioned. These five, because of God's grace. All of them outsiders, except for Mary, to the family of God. All of them brought in. All of them with somewhat questionable stories. All of them brought in. And Jesus is happy to call them mother. Happy to consider them part of his family. So let's go to 39. This will go faster, I promise. There's so much intricacy in chapter 38. Hopefully that helps you kind of see the beauty of the story there. Now, let's look at the the opposite one. 
now we have Joseph. And just notice the difference between Joseph and Judah in terms of how they handle situations. So first of all, we get the context here. Joseph in Potiphar's, he thrives in Potiphar's mansion, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the office of Pharaoh, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Notice that. Notice how many times the Lord is mentioned here. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he was made, that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So we know from Genesis 37, 2, that Joseph gets sold into slavery roughly at age 17. We know that he gets appointed to being second in command under Pharaoh when he's age 30. We know that from Genesis 41, 46. So we're somewhere in between there. He's in jail at least three years, maybe more. So we're talking a man probably in his early to mid-20s. It's probably taken a few years to rise up the ranks of Potiphar's house, but the man is just remarkable. He is remarkable in that the Lord is with him. Even Potiphar, and it uses the covenant name of God, so even Potiphar knows that Yahweh is the one blessing him. You'll notice that at the end of the chapter as well, that Yahweh, particularly not just generically a deity, but the deity, Yahweh, is credited both at the beginning and the end of the chapter as being marked by Joseph. Joseph is, is giving credit, and even those that he works for are giving credit to Yahweh. So that's a fascinating thing. From the beginning to the end, Yahweh is with Joseph, and the people know it, and they're benefiting. Those who bless you will be blessed, and they're experiencing this blessing. So we get this interesting phrase in verse 6 that Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. He was good-looking. He was built, and he was pretty. Uh, we've had this phrase talked, uh, used before in concerning Sarah and Rebecca, and we both know that uh, both of them were very desirable um, by others, and so Joseph seems to have inherited that same good appearance, handsome in form and appearance. So now we get to, that's the setup. So he's in the royal official, the captain of the guard, the right, one of the, one of the key officials in Egypt. He's at the top of the food chain. In fact, all that Potiphar worries about is what he's going to eat every day. Other than that, everything's under Joseph's care and everything is thriving. So he is at the top of the food chain, so to speak, but yet still a slave. Now, verse, verses 7 through 19. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of, my mas because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wick wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, 
When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me and to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. So again, he's so much different than Judah, right? Judah's looking for someone to sleep with. Joseph, Joseph has it coming at him strong, and he doesn't. If you were to read Proverbs 7, verses 6 through 27, you would see a, a profile of Potiphar's wife in many ways right there. This book of wisdom that was given to young men, particularly the book of Proverbs, to watch out for the seductress, it almost is like exactly Potiphar's wife. It's a call in Proverbs to be like Joseph. Joseph is almost like the living embodiment of Proverbs in many ways. You look at the wise things that Joseph does over his life and you wonder if the writer of Proverbs isn't thinking, ah, people should be godly like Joseph. Uh, notice the three reasons for refusal. Number one, this would be an offense against your husband. Right? He trusts me. Now, lesser men would see that as an opportunity. Because I'm trusted, because I'm trusted, I could do what I want. But for him, it's the exact opposite. There is something in him that sees that that level of trust and power and authority is a check on his desires, not an outlet for him. Number two, it would be an abuse of trust. And number three, this would be a sin against God. Isn't that interesting? He believes that God is with him in temptation. That God sees and knows and has opinions about what is done in private. Joseph knows God is with him, God sees. And he doesn't want to sin against God. You get into Psalm 51, when David is confessing his sin about Bathsheba and putting Uriah to death and all this stuff, he says, he has this audacious thing that he says, he says, you and you only have I sinned against. God, you saw what I did and it displeased you. Yes, I sinned against others, but my ultimate offense is against you. And for Joseph in Egypt, way away from the promised land, way away from anyone else that worships God, he knows God's with him. He knows God sees. And he is trying to persuade her, why would I do such wickedness and sin against God. He would see. He would know. He would be displeased in this. Fascinating. He has no, uh, he has no rules on him at all. In all of the household of Egypt, all the household of Pharaoh, there's only one no, and that's his wife. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and God put Adam and Eve in a world that was full of yes, and there was one no. And what did Adam and Eve fixate on? The one no. How dare God say no? The serpent's temptation was, did God really say? 
you will not surely die. There won't be any consequences. This will just between us, right? Would have been awesome if Joseph had been in the Garden of Eden, right? <laughs> I don't know. We don't want to portray Joseph as sinless here, but I think there's a bit of a parallel here is that there's only one prohibition that Joseph has. And because of his belief in the presence of God and the honor of other human beings, he says no, he flees. And day after day, this serpent woman is coming and tempting him. And he refuses, 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 refuses. So you get almost like a new Adam here, right? Like the, the Adam that you would kind of hope would be the, the, the Adam we actually had. And it's going to point to a new Adam. And I, just look at Joseph's moral clarity. He calls it great wickedness and sin. You know when the politicians come out, right? They've had some sort of incident, right? We, you hear that, you know, there's some affair is put forth, and it's like, well, I had an indiscretion, right? Or uh, an inappropriate relationship. Or an unfortunate incident, I had a moral lapse or I executed poor judgment, right? Which are all softening. Not for Joseph. Joseph calls it, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Like he just lays it out. His moral clarity of what's really going on, that to give in to Potiphar's wife would be great wickedness and sin against God. Not a moral indiscretion, not a moment of weakness, sin and wickedness which like we read in 1 Corinthians 6.18, we're called to flee sexual immorality, which I think Paul's talking about. Joseph, do the Joseph thing. Let him be a moral example to you. What's interesting now is twice now, items of clothing have, been, have brought about a conviction, right? In chapter 38, she brings forth the signet ring and the staff and it brings conviction on Judah. Well, now it's being used the other way. His coat, his coat, his coat, that he was given by his father is used to deceive his father. Now the coat that he left with, um, with Potiphar's wife is now going to be used wrongly to deceive Potiphar. Twice now, Joseph has been trying to do the right thing and twice now it has not worked out. I would guess that if there was ever a temptation to decide, you know what, maybe following God is not worth it. This might be it twice now. I've tried to do the right thing. And twice now, doing the right thing has put me in a worse position. That's not how he sees it. Potiphar's wife blames her husband. You're the one that brought him in here. That sounds kind of like Genesis 3. The woman you put here made me do it. Blames her husband. Even refuses to use his name. These Hebrews, you know how these Hebrews are and they're women. They love to gather up the women. These Hebrews, of course he would seduce me. Of course he would try to do this to me. You know how these Hebrews are refuses to use his name, use references to his ethnicity and social standing to condemn him and puts it back on Potiphar. So look at verses 20 through 23, Joseph thrown in Pharaoh's prison. So we go from the beginning, jo Joseph thriving in Potiphar's mansion. Now, because of this incident, Joseph is thrown in Pharaoh's prison. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So this is like bad jail. This is not like nice jail. This is like bad jail. And you're talking Egyptian jail. Don't talk, don't think like rapid city jail. Think of ancient jail. This is not a pleasant place to be. And there he was in prison. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, hesed, covenant love, 
and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord, Yahweh, was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord, Yahweh, made it succeed. God's covenant name over and over and over again in an Egyptian prison. Sustaining him, holding him fast, strengthening him. When it looks like walking with God always makes things worse, God is with him. And even others can notice that. Joseph has integrity. He is an integrated man. You think of integrity, integral, one. Joseph is one thing. Joseph's a different person in different settings. Or uh, Judah is. Judah's a different person in different settings. Abraham was a man in different, different, in different settings, right? Sometimes brave, sometimes a coward, sometimes this, sometimes that. Joseph's like an integrated man. He has integrity. He's one thing because of the presence of God with him. What marks him is God's presence. And that makes him an integrated man. He's the same man in every setting. He's the same kind of person. And this seems to provide a winsome testimony to those around him. They attribute the success to Yahweh. And this sets up for a glorious resurrection. He's kind of in a, in a, in a grave, so to speak. And we have a glorious resurrection that's going to be coming soon. An unjust man put, so to speak, in the grave and being rise, rise to a place of prominence and royalty. So a few takeaways. We're almost done. I knew this would, be, would take some time. Thank you for your patience. But a few takeaways for us. Number one, the company you keep matters. Judah has Hira, who just sort of enables, right? An ungodly man who helps cover stuff up, who helps facilitate things. Who does Joseph have with him? Yahweh. And it makes all the difference. An ungodly friend versus God himself. He's his enabler. Judah has an enabler. Well, Joseph has an enabler too, but it's an enabler for godliness and integrity. It's better to be enslaved by God, better to be enslaved and with God than free among the ungodly. We saw that with Lot. Being in Sodom didn't work out so great. Prosperity, better to be enslaved with God than to be free with the ungodly. And so a question for us would be, do you surround yourself with people who enable and encourage godliness? Or do you surround yourself with influences and people who enable and encourage sin and temptation and cover-ups? Who do we surround ourselves with? Number two, godly integrity matters. We already talked about this. Integrity means being whole, one, undivided. Judah's a hypocrite, a chameleon. But Joseph is the same everywhere. He's integrated. He's one man all the time about you? Are you the same person all the time? Not because of the circumstances. That's kind of the next point. Circumstances and consequences do not matter to Joseph. He's going to do the right thing. Whether he's in positive circumstances, he cares about what God thinks. When he's in, when it's going to cost him, he's going to do what he thinks God wants him to do. That's what I mean by circumstances and consequences don't matter to him. The presence of God is what matters, and pleasing God is what matters. So I'm asking you, do you have a relative morality? Do you weigh the circumstances and consequences? Does that weigh into your 
decisions more than it ought to. And then fourthly, God's, or fifthly, something in there, somewhere in there. God's purposes and plan work in strange ways. It looks like a failure for godliness, right? It looks like doing the right thing never works out. It just never works out. What is the point of being faithful to God if this is how he's going to treat you? Have you ever asked that question? I have tried to do the right thing and I still got this diagnosis. I did everything right with my kids and they still don't love Jesus. But God may be setting up something, a bigger plan. This is a setup. God is putting the chess pieces in exactly the right places. God is willing to give up some pawns, so to speak, to do the checkmate move, right? He is not afraid to put Joseph through some suffering because he knows what's going to happen. Glory is going to come after suffering. Suffering, then glory. And so like a master chess player, God is putting Joseph exactly where he wants. It might not look like it in the moment that this is working, that this is winning, but the plan of God is working, and it is winning, even from an Egyptian prison. Last thing, there's a gospel pattern that's developing. Judah in chapter 38 is a sinner deserving judgment but does not receive it. He needs rescue from a righteous one that he himself betrayed, right? He's the one that sold Joseph. Then in chapter 39, we have Joseph who is a righteous man who receives judgment that he doesn't deserve. And he's going to be the one that's gonna provide rescue for the one that betrayed him. Do you see a pattern setting up here? A gospel-shaped pattern. Spurgeon says this, Joseph never said a word that I can learn about Potiphar's wife. It seemed necessary to his own defense, but he would not accuse the woman. He let judgment go by default and left her to her own conscience and her husband's cooler consideration. This showed great power. It is hard for a man to compress his lips, saying nothing when his character is at stake. So eloquent was Joseph in his silence that there is not a word of complaint throughout the whole record of his life. And speaking about Jesus one day, looking forward in Isaiah 53, like a sheep before its shearers were silent, so the Messiah will go and will receive an injustice he did not deserve. And from that cross will cry out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they did, which is exactly what Joseph's gonna do with his brothers. Am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good, that many lives would be saved. And so we see a gospel pattern. Joseph became a convicted sex offender, though he committed no sexual offense, so that from the grave of prison, he might rise to a place, an exalted place with resources to deliver and save his own brother, the real offender. Joseph got what Judah deserved, even admitted that he deserved. Judah will one day get the benefit of what Joseph is and has done. It is Joseph's life and integrity and wisdom that is going to save Judah. My friends, some of us are Judah. We have been enslaved by our desires, surrounded by people who are not a spiritual help to us. They help us sin or at least distract us from godliness. We lie, scheme, compete, accuse others to our own benefit. We hypocritically call out other sins while we ourselves do the same things, which James says is a terrible wickedness. And my friends, some of us are like Tamar, used, abused, lied to, manipulated by someone who claims to be a part of the people of God. Sometimes we've been put in horrible situations where we've done things that we deeply regret. We sin and we own it. 
and there's no getting around that. But if we're honest, this world and the evil done in the name of God to you can also be redeemed. Tamar has a deliverer too, and it's the same deliverer that's going to deliver her and her sons. We are seeing played out in this lax section of Genesis a real historical narrative that is true and yet brilliantly displays on a small little scale model what the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he does. What he's done, how he does it, and how he can save you. If you, like Judah, quit hiding and excusing your sin, like you've been confronted with it, own it. Own it and repent. Admit admit your need for righteousness and turn in repentance and real obedience to the person and worship of Christ. And God has provided healing, wholeness, and deliverance, and joy if you will look to him in faith. He can do it. He can rise from the dead, and he can save and fix you. And if Jesus is not afraid to be identified with someone like Tamar, he's certainly not afraid to be identified with someone like you, regardless of what you've done. He is happy to receive you into his family. We see this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a gospel pattern that's going to play out. Let's pray. God, I thank you for my friends here. Thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to see all that is really there. Uh, There's so much more we could look at, but Lord, we thank you for writing this story in such a compelling way so that we would be humble about ourselves, about where we've come from, about where we've done, that we would be brought low, that we would maybe see ourselves a bit in the story. And Lord, but also help us to see you. Help us to see your work. Help, me to see, help us to see your patience and your grace, your willingness to work with sinners, uh, to even turn sin around for good. And so Lord, I pray that that would not in any way excuse our sin, but it would cause us to be in awe of what you can do with really broken, messed up people. And God, help us to learn from Joseph and realize and be people of integrity that are the same all of the time because our God is the same all the time and he is with us. So Lord, help us not to waste circumstances and consequences more than we ought and just be in your presence, living for your glory and letting the chips fall where they may. I pray for my friends to, and myself for us to step into that because of the person work of Christ. Help us to trust in him. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.